If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them with me this morning to the book of John. Once again, John chapter 9. Uh, John chapter 9 is where we were last week. We return to a story that last week we just began to scratch the surface of. Today we're going to read a majority of the narrative and uh, learn what the primary point of this passage is. Uh, as I pointed out many times through John's words himself, his account of the life of Jesus is not just aimed at introducing you to Jesus. He's telling you why you must believe that Jesus is the Christ. He wants you to believe that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so as we've talked about before, the Gospel of John, as all the Gospel accounts, are not exhaustive accounts, but they're selective accounts aiming at a particular goal, a particular vision that the writer and ultimately the Holy Spirit has given. And so John, to accomplish this purpose of uh, pressing you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, he includes in his Gospel seven signs of Jesus. Seven signs that demonstrate that he was who he said he was. But there are also signs that point beyond them. They're miracles that essentially become parables. They point to deeper spiritual truths. And we've looked at five of them so far. And as we turn to chapter 9, today we come to the sixth. The sixth sign of the Gospel of John. And we didn't talk about this last week for those of you who are here, but you might remember that the context of this particular part of Jesus' ministry, the recent context is the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember this? Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the Feast of Tabernacle, talking about what it was. It was one of the big three feasts of ancient Jewish life. And it commemorated God's presence and God's care for His people in the wilderness as they wandered by the leading of Yahweh. And yet Jesus used this context of the Feast of Tabernacles as an occasion to teach who He was. And so we talked, for instance, about how He tied Himself to this festival of light that was embedded in the Feast of Tabernacles, and He declared... I am the light of the world. As you might imagine, that kind of rhetoric that Jesus now is speaking publicly is not going over well with the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And as a result, Jesus is much more than just a curiosity. He's much more than an annoyance or a disturbance But very clearly, by this point in his ministry, in our journey through John, Jesus is a threat. A threat that must be dealt with. But as we'll see today, in pretty incredible fashion, his power is an unmistakable pointer to his person. Yes, he has declared that he is the light of the world, but now he is going to demonstrate it once again for all to see, at least those who have eyes to see. 
So John chapter 9 is where we pick up again this morning. Uh, If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. It's kind of a lengthy passage, so if you need to sit, go ahead and sit. John chapter 9, we're going to read the verses we read last week as they kind of set the context and roll right into the rest of the passage. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Listen as I read. As he, that is Jesus... Passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to him, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 
And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. Some of you may have seen this in your own reading of God's word. But did you know that according to the gospel accounts, there are more instances of Jesus healing blind people than any other type of miracle? And in this chapter, we hear the word blind more than 15 times, which is more than any other chapter in the New Testament. All that to say... What Jesus wanted to communicate through his interactions with those who couldn't see is, I think, vitally important to us. See, today's story is a fundamental picture of grace and judgment. It's one that clearly communicates that it's the gospel that brings life And conversely, it's the gospel that condemns those who refuse it. Last week we considered this important theological question that the disciples asked in verse 2. We looked at the first five verses last week, and so we won't unpack those again if you weren't here. Sorry about that. But today I want to look specifically specifically at this miracle And what is the deeper meaning behind it? What is the parable behind it? And then how does it apply to our lives today? Two truths for us to consider and meditate on from this story today. And the first one is this. Jesus is the light who gives sight. Jesus is the light who gives sight. It seems increasingly so. We live in our own world of brokenness, of homelessness, as we're confronted with people at various street corners with signs in need of help. In this time and place, 
particularly at this season, the Feast of Tabernacles in the ancient Jewish world, it would have been common for the streets to be lined with people in need. People with various ailments who are unable to work and who are flooding the streets of Jerusalem in hopes that they can seize upon the kindness of the worshipers who have gathered there. For so many, I suspect, they became numb to it. But something happens, not only in verse 1 of our passage this morning, but in between verses 1 and 2. You see, John records that Jesus saw. Jesus noticed. Now, what exactly happened, we don't know. We, we ultimately can't know. Jesus saw and noticed this man, and then did he, did he just stop and just stare at him? Did he squat or kneel down and begin talking to this man? Something that Jesus did brought this particular man to the disciples' attention. You see, I suspect it was easy for everyone to just look the other way, or simply to become callous and cynical to the cries I suspect that was the case because I feel that in my own heart in our day and age. Even in the disciples' first words as Jesus brings this man to their attention, they see this man first as a problem, not necessarily as a person. Jesus, of course, didn't stop for everyone lining the streets. He couldn't stop for everyone lining the streets, but this man, for some reason, he did stop for. He saw him. He humanized him. He had compassion upon him. And, and this is where the story begins and where the heart of our Savior begins. And I just simply don't want us to miss that about him. But it's what he does next that really astounds and also confuses us. People often talk about the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Two words. What are they? Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. Well, here, Jesus spits. Jesus spits. What an image. Jesus spits on the ground, uses it to make a pile of Mud, all you germaphobes are cringing at this moment. And then he covers this blind man's eyes with it. Eyes that don't work anyway. And we ask, why? Why would you do this, Jesus? Well, the short answer is, we don't know. At least we don't know for sure. We do know that this was the kind of thing that pagan healers did in that time and place. A very demonstrative, kind of showy thing. So why would Jesus do it when we know that Jesus could have just said a word and the man would have seen? He's done that kind of thing already, right? Well, some people posit that it was to encourage the man's faith. That Jesus was indeed up to something. To ask him to do something in faith. To go and wash now. 
This does sound like Jesus meeting the man where, where he was. But I think as I've thought about this, as I've read about it, I think Jesus was doing two things in this. Number one, he was tying himself to creation. Remember how John began his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through him. You see, here, the Creator spits instead of speaking. Why? Because He takes the very dust from which we came and recreates it. Brings light out of darkness. Light into the eyes and into the life of this man. Psalm 146, verse 8, the writer says this of Yahweh. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. You see, Jesus is the light who gives sight. Jesus is the Creator who recreates. But notice also, and this is the second reason why I think he does this, notice also in this passage in verse 14 that John tells us when Jesus did this. Jesus did this when? On the Sabbath day. Jesus is not just linking himself to creation and that work of creation, proving that he and the Creator are one and the same. He is making mud because according to the Pharisees, that is work. Work that by their standards is prohibited on the Sabbath day. Jesus has already crossed swords with them about this in His ministry. And here He is trying to help them see clearly who He is. Of course, this is dangerous to do this. Jesus knows that. He knows where this is all headed at the hands of this men. But at this point in this ministry, He knows that that's where it's headed. He knows that this is what happens. He is the Creator who recreates and He is the Savior who has come to give His life and die. The chosen servant that Isaiah spoke of, the one Yahweh would give to His people. Listen to Isaiah 42.6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. And that's exactly what happens. We haven't even mentioned the end result of this crazy action of making mud. Right, The man obeys Jesus' instruction and goes and washes in the pool and he comes back seen. He is the light who gives sight. And so John wants his readers, he wants his hearers to recognize the power of Jesus. But this is more than just about physical blindness. This is about spiritual blindness. 
This is about those who reject Him outright and those who struggle to trust Him in the darkness of life. This is about the Pharisees and everyone in this scene. And this is about you. And this is about me. And that's the second truth that I want us to think about for a few moments and meditate on. It's this. We are the blind who need Jesus. We are the blind who need Jesus. See, as you listen to this story and and as you consider how it fits into your life, many of you here identify with the blind man, right? Of course you do. Not in the sense of physical blindness, but in the sense of spiritual blindness. Your your past reflects his. As the familiar hymn writer John Newton says in one of the most familiar hymns in our day and age, I once was blind, but now I see. And this is true. I mean, this is the primary point. Jesus is the light that gives sight to those who are helpless, to those who can't heal themselves. He helps them see. But this is a passage that's more than just about the blind man. Because everyone in this passage is blind. Except for the blind man. We are the blind who need Jesus. The fact that Jesus is the light that gives sight is fundamental. But if that were all that John wanted to communicate, if that were all the Holy Spirit wanted to say to us this morning through His Word, The account could have just ended after verse 7. Instead, there is this lengthy set of interactions which I think challenge us in a whole other way. You see, the blind man, the blind man needed nothing more. His story was simple. And he's forced to recount it over and over again to the point of frustration. He was blind. He went He washed, he sees. But all the others in the story, they were the ones who were struggling to see. They were the ones who ultimately couldn't see. They thought they could, but they were too blind. Blind with a blindness worse than the man with remnants of mud on his body. Because now it's the blind man's sight that presents them with a theological problem. So this morning I'd like us, as we think about this passage coming into our lives, I'd like us to briefly consider each of these interactions. Three sets of interactions. Three sets of people. That as I've thought about this, as I've meditated on this, three sets of people who thought ultimately that Jesus was too much, too blank. You fill in the blank. I'll fill in the blank for you. Jesus was too something, T-O-O, something. First, the neighbors. 
verses 8 through 12. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it there. The neighbors in verses 8 through 12. The way I characterize the neighbor's struggle and their blindness is that this is too good to be true. It's just too good to be true. Right out of the gate, those who had seen this man for years at his spot, doing his thing, they were struggling. And understandably so. For, for so many years, his identity had been wrapped up in this infirmity. And one understands that to see him standing whole, seeing, looking at them, it was too much. It is, is that? No. It can't be. That can't be him. It, it looks like, well, it looks like him. It kind of sounds like him, but that, that guy, he was blind. And now, and the whole time, the guy's like, hey, I'm the man. I'm the guy. But their unwillingness to, to receive this man really revealed their unwillingness to recognize that God could do the impossible and that He was among them. Stuck in their own paradigm, they, they struggled to see. This was just too good to be true. You see, I think I get this. <laughs> you get this. I think we have compassion on the neighbors, don't we? I'd have to process a bit. I'm a processor. And here we are in our post-enlightenment, rationalistic, scientific, information age. We would struggle, right? There must be another explanation. That guy must have a twin. Something. Am I being pranked? What's going on here? But by, by definition, grace is amazing. It demands the kind of jaw-dropping wonder that doesn't always require a logical explanation. Sometimes we just need to have childlike faith. It's one of my favorite song lyrics says, He who believes the unbelievable will gain the unattainable. But the neighbor's the neighbors struggled to believe. It was too good to be true. And then there's the Pharisees, the Jews, the religious leaders. They are the main attraction of this story, right? We find their interaction in verses 13 and the verses that following. What was their issue? Well, for them, the issue we might say is too much grace. Too much grace. You see, for these men, it was about the law. We are disciples of Moses, they say in verse 25. This man broke the Sabbath, they say in verse 16. This guy's a sinner. He can't do that kind of stuff. You see, their unwillingness to receive this man revealed their own pride. And the laws that they had devised, 
and in their perceived ability to keep them. They didn't distinguish between the truth of God's Word and the traditions that they had created. Instead, their own sin blinds them and they refuse to open their eyes. Well, we get this too, I think. I hope. Our goodness, our performance, our assertions of what we think a good Christian should be, our tendency to rejoice that we are not like them over there. Thank God that I'm not like one of those. Our tendency to have the attitude of of the older brother when the younger brother returns and is thrown a party. You see, we get this. Too much grace. Too much grace. And they go so far as to question whether or not this man was really blind in the first place. right? And that brings us to the last interaction. His parents. His parents. This is verses 19 and following. And the way I've characterized this, so we've got the neighbors. We've got the neighbors first. Jesus and what He did was too good to be true. We've got the Pharisees. Jesus and what He did, it was too much grace. And now we've got the parents. Jesus is too risky. Jesus is too risky. As I said earlier, by this time the stigma attached to Jesus, it was significant. People were essentially being excommunicated from the synagogue as a result of their association with Him. So when the parents are pressed to verify not only His identity, but His experience of healing, they essentially throw their son under the bus. While they verify who He claims to be, the circumstances of how He was healed, well, they're not going to talk about that. And they weren't clueless as to what happened. As John tells us in verse 22, they were scared. Scared not of the one who had just done the impossible thing and given sight to their son who had never laid eyes on them in his life. They're not scared of him. They're scared of these men standing with furrowed brows and proper robes and pointed fingers. You see, this is a tendency in so many of our experiences in our lives. Whether it be standing up for Jesus or the things He holds dear, or simply being anxious about our reputation and what others are going to think of us, as, as the title of the book so aptly sums up and profoundly states, when people are big and God is small. How often is that a problem in our hearts and in our lives? This man had just healed their son. He had never seen them. I suspect there were tears. I suspect there were embraces. And yet their fear blinded them to the One who held all power. Why? Because the cost of following Jesus was just too much. It was too risky. 
Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10 as he was sending them out, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Too good to be true, too much grace, too risky. The question I have for you is, what's blinding you? What's keeping you from not just believing Him, but abiding in Him, receiving life from Him, true life in His name? You see, this passage teaches us, it reminds us that there is a blindness, a sinfulness of our own hearts that distorts the ability our ability to see ourselves and Him clearly. And that's either for the first time, if you've never come in faith to Jesus, or for the thousandth time, if you're still every day struggling to come in faith to Jesus and to trust Him with whatever's going on. That's the challenge, I think, of this story. That's the challenge of these interactions. And the prayer of David from my favorite psalm ever, Psalm 139, I think needs to be the cry of our hearts. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and try my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, Lord God, help me to see others with compassion. Help me to see myself and to repent of the blind spots in my life. Help me to see you in all of your glory, in all of your goodness. And of course, this is a process. This is not a snap the finger kind of magic thing, right? The the blind man, we, we see the process of his life. By God's grace and with the Lord's help, he went from confusion about who healed him, right? When he was first asked, he said, he is a prophet, to absolute clarity. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To courage, where he challenges the religious leaders. Do you want to be his disciple too? To commitment. When confronted with a person of Christ, Lord, I believe. From confusion to clarity to courage to commitment. Brothers and sisters, wherever you are this morning, God's Word calls you to see the one who gives sight, acknowledging who He is, and to recognize and to pray that you'll be able to see the blindness of your own life and your need for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word again this morning. We thank you for these interactions preserved for us by your spirit. Holy Spirit, take them and the truths that they contain and apply them to our lives. Challenge us where we are. Meet us where we are. That, Father, we might be given sight to see you increasingly clearly. To see ourselves increasingly clearly. Oh, Father, do this, we ask, for our good 
and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.